Christmas truth, making spirits bright. This is part two. I want to talk to you about six reasons Jesus was born into this world. Six reasons Jesus was born into this world. The Apostle John is very clear that God the Son, there never was a time when he didn't exist. So in in pretty direct statements, John points out that, that Jesus was God and that Jesus was with God. That's really striking, a wasness and a withness. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, that's where you have to start. So unless you're going to do some radical tampering with the text, and some interpreters do, these are the kind of passages that have always necessitated the doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus was God, John says, inspired by the Holy Spirit. John wasn't making up his own opinions here. Jesus was God in the sense that he is of the same divine essence. He is eternal. He is creator of all that is. He is God. And yet, he's also with God in the sense of not being an an undistinguished entity that there is a distinct personality. So there's a oneness and there's a distinctness. And we can't figure all that out with our finite minds, but you have to be true to the data of the words. Today, we're looking at reasons Jesus, his birth name, the reason Jesus gave for his coming into this world. We're going to look at six of them. I mean, John's teaching makes it important for us to understand what we mean and what we don't mean when we talk about Jesus coming into this world. We don't mean the beginning of the Son's existence. That would be impossible because John said there never was a time when the Son didn't exist. He didn't have a beginning. Just as there never was a time when God the Father didn't exist. The Son was eternally with the Father. We get that. And yet Jesus himself does refer to his coming. We're going to see how Jesus uses that word. He talks about his coming into this world. That's what that Christmas-sounding word, Advent, literally means coming. We call that coming the incarnation. That's the time when God the Son received his birth name. You shall call his name Jesus. Not that uncommon a name at that time. That's when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary with a physical human body. That's what we're looking at in this Christmas teaching. Why did he come? Why did he come into this world? I want to let Jesus speak for himself. There are all sorts of people who have their own ideas about who Jesus was and is, what he accomplished in his coming. You know some of the ideas. They run from a poor, deluded, moral reformer to uh, the greatest religious teacher and prophet of all times to a superstar traveling around Palestine with his religious groupies. 
And if that's all Jesus accomplished in his coming, I want to know that. I certainly don't want to hitch my wagon to some mistaken religious dream that will desert me in the end. If I'm mistaken about Jesus and why he came, I want to find out right now. But I don't think I am mistaken. I think the biblical witness from Jesus himself is reliable, straightforward, and compelling. I think the great I came statements, we're not looking at all of them, we're looking at six of them, those great I came statements from, from Jesus' own lips, they provide truly a, a double-edged sword that still cuts into the bones of honest searchers of truth. So I have six I came texts from Jesus. Some of them you've heard a million times. Some of them might surprise you, especially in a Christmas message. They're hope-filled, but nonetheless, some of them are very blunt and powerful. They, they cut to the core of human need and predicament. So these are not media-friendly sound bites. They're not texts. They're the cutting edge of saving, life-giving grace. And they frequently, frequently they, they bite and jab before they soothe and heal. So try and listen here in the sanctuary, live streaming with us today. Get a Bible. Try and listen with fresh ears to these life-changing Christmas statements from the lips of Jesus, the risen Lord of all the earth, as to why he came. One, Jesus said he came to give his life a ransom for many. I get that in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not. I want you to see this, some form of that word coming in all of these texts. We're talking about his incarnation. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, there's the word, as a ransom for many. Now, the words ransom, there's a cluster of them. Ransom, redemption, redeem. We use those a lot in, in sort of Christian circles. And they're used a great deal in the New Testament with, with pretty good reason. They're words that go to describing, they go to describing the nature of our problem, our need. We are reminded over and over again when you see those words ransom, redemption, redeem. We're reminded over and over that our, our need isn't, never was and isn't just information, pretty good teaching, some moral instruction. And that's highly relevant to today's approach to most of mankind's problems because we're constantly being told that education will turn the tide, we will do the right thing once we know the right thing. Or we're told that all we need is a really great example to follow. If we can just see the truth, we'll be drawn into it ourselves. I think we know better. I mean, the world has always been loaded with good teaching to learn and good examples to follow. And our problem is, on the whole, we choose, 
either to ignore or to reject both. Enter Jesus. He says our problem is, is we need to be ransom. Give his life as a ransom for many. He wasn't doing it for himself. A ransom. We are captive to an alien power. No amount of teaching or preaching or church going or penance paying or alms giving or carol singing, none of that will obtain our release from sin's power. No religious instructor, no prophet can deliver us. No teaching can save us. No example can benefit us. Not in this sense. So that's the relevance of Christmas, the coming of Jesus. This is where Jesus Christ stands alone as our greatest source of joy and our only hope. Only he redeemed us. Look at these words. When, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth. This is when the sun started to exist. This is when he was sent forth, his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Here's the same word, right? To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive the adoption of sons and daughters. <clears throat> the fullness of time, Paul says. That's describing the time of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. He was born, says Paul, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might have the adoption as sons and daughters. See, there was something standing in the way of that. A ransom was necessary. Redemption had to be accomplished. A price had to be paid. We weren't, we weren't morally neutral just waiting to be launched into a new family. We were in enemy territory. We sold our birthright. Jesus came to pay a price so that our adoption as sons and daughters of God could become a genuine possibility. Two, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come, there it is, his coming again. <clears throat> I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, to repentance. So prone are we all to forget this, that Jesus says the same thing twice in two verses, and he says it in two different ways. First, because Jesus knows all sin has its root in an inward condition, inward condition invisible to the human eye, he, he refers to it in more common terms so that we'll be able to get a handle on it. Human sickness, that's what he talks about. Think of disease. Cancer. Lupus tuberculosis. We know this language. And, and what we all know, almost by reflex, is sick people need 
a doctor. No, more than that, the doctor exists precisely for sick people. Hospitals aren't built for healthy people. Hospitals are built for sick people. And so Jesus comes out and he states the central point that just as a doctor exists for sick people, Jesus came with pardon for sinful people. Now, no one would have come to that conclusion automatically. We're so used to talking about it, we don't see the, the shocking aspect of it. People wouldn't come to that conclusion that Jesus came specifically with pardon for sinful people because the Bible is packed to overflowing with the fact that God is absolutely, blazingly holy. And so we just naturally conclude that, that he came for holy people, not sinful people. This is ingrained in our religious systems, our moral systems. We sin and we hide from God. We sin and we cover up and lie and make excuses. We sin and we blame other people. We sin and we stay home from church. We sin and we stop praying. Or worse, we sin and we turn up our noses at worse sinners because we get it into our minds that that somehow makes us more holy. How desperately we need to hear this wonderful I came Christmas truth. Hear it from a holy Lord Jesus who said, but, but I, I came for sinners. Doesn't that make your heart glad? I came for sinners. <laughs> Those are the people I, I came to reach. In the same way that a doctor exists for the sick, I came for the sinners. This has to be combined with that first point about redemption and the ransom paid. See, because the ransom has already been paid on the cross, the roadblocks have all been removed. Sinners do have to repent, true enough, but they repent knowing that the price has been paid to, to open the way, to make that repentance fruitful and effective. God is open to our repentance. He invites it. We have a sympathetic high priest, so no one need feel that his cry for mercy will fall on deaf ears in heaven. The ransom has been paid. God has taken that first step. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Now repentance can be fruitful from sinful people. Three. A little bit longer point. This is more typically a Horban point, I guess. Jesus came to give spiritual sight to the morally blind and to judge those who refuse to respond to the redeeming truth they have heard. That's in that really sort of biting text in John 9, 39 to 41. And I want you to see that while it's not typically thought of as such, this is a Christmas text because it talks specifically about Jesus. For judgment, I came into this world. That's really clear, isn't it? When did he come into this world? Well, that's Christmas. For judgment, I came into this world. That those who do not see 
may see. The light will go on for people. But that's not all. And those who see, look at this, may become, there's the verb, blind. Wow. Some of the Pharisees near him, they heard these things. They didn't like it. And they said to him, to Jesus, so, so, are we also blind, Jesus? Is that, is that what you're saying? Really? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. These are really staggering words. They, they tell us that apart from repentantly hearing Jesus Christ, we, we won't have a clue about uh, the deepest issues of our own hearts, regardless of how brilliant we might be in other areas of interest. So apart from personal attachment to Jesus Christ, we will be blind to the key eternal dimension of our own beings. The reason these words are so important is people who reject Jesus, people who reject Jesus don't normally think of themselves as blind. That's it. People who for one reason or another reject Jesus don't think of themselves as in the deepest sense being blind. They think maybe, maybe that's you, maybe you're watching. They think they have more important things to do. They think they're too cultured, sophisticated to embrace a 2,000-year-old religion. They think they're just being open-minded. They think they're just living in the real world. In other words, they, they think all sorts of people this Christmas reject Jesus, and they think they see things just fine. Thank you. And Jesus says, no. No. That's where this point is so keenly related to the previous one about repentance. Each point builds on the next. People who don't repent when they confront Jesus just aren't seeing things as they really, they don't see their need. They don't see themselves as sick. Remember the text we just looked at? They don't see themselves as blind. Those who think they can genuinely hear Christmas truth about Jesus and just continue to let life roll on business as usual, Jesus says they're truly blind, and he says their guilt remains. That's a huge problem. God has made it easy. He opened the door by paying the ransom. Repentance doesn't require that much in the way of moral purity. You just have to be honest. You have to humbly come. You, you see only a tiny little bit of light, but you repent. And then after repentance, more lights go on. Your eyes are open to a whole new world of light and joy and peace and hope. I pray that you experience that this Christmas. But there's also a warning note that comes from Jesus in this text. Ignore Jesus and you don't remain neutral. That's what Jesus, I came into this world, Jesus said, to bring that division about. Ignore Jesus, you don't stay neutral. The, the inner rejection of truth, it's quiet, it's discreet, 
Nobody knows maybe that you're doing it, but it morphs. It grows. The self-deception in your own heart, it gets more dense and more binding. There's simply no escaping the warning tone of Jesus if you're going to be honest with that text about, here's why I came. This text is it's meant to pull us out of ourselves and into Christmas grace. Four. Jesus came to deliver mankind from condemnation before a just and holy God. John 3, 17 and 18. These follow immediately on the heels of the best known words in the Bible. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not, here it is, send his son into the world. Just to be clear, we're talking about Christmas here, right? That's when the Son came into the world. So this is a Christmas text from Jesus. Did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. That is important. The world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe, and so now we're looking at this blind seeing and those that, that think they see fine becoming more blind. We just studied that. This is the same kind of idea. In order that the world might be saved through him, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Is that it? No. Whoever, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only, there's not any other root, the only son of God. These are important words because they prevent the misunderstanding that we can safely go on, the last point, that we can safely go on in the blindness of our own hearts and just sort of assume everything will come out fine in the end because God is love. A lot of people do that. It, doesn't, it just doesn't look like it from those words as they come tumbling out of Jesus' own lips. They're, they're tailored to incite some kind of urgency in our response. Let me say it as, as clearly as I know. For the unrepentant sinner, for the one who chooses to turn away from God's ransom and grace, who refuses to repent, the greatest danger isn't his or her sin. That's been atoned. The greatest danger isn't demons or Satan. The greatest danger is the just condemnation of God for rejecting his son. Jesus is God's answer. The text says, Jesus is God's answer to the just condemnation of guilty sinners. And that means, outside of Jesus, there, outside of Jesus, there is nothing to expect but wrath from Father God. Not a wicked, irrational, temper tantrum kind of anger that we're all familiar with, but simply the, the inability of God to peacefully exist with sin and iniquity. God can't live with sin for the same reasons snow can't live with heat. Jesus is God's answer 
to his just condemnation of guilty sinners. If I don't choose Jesus in repentance and faith, I choose the wrath of God by default. Pastor Don, that's really strong. Where do you get that idea? John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, now, I hope you noticed that, because John explains what he means by belief. It's not just an intellectual thing. Notice how he makes that little switch. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Is that it? Well, no. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The wrath of God remains on him. For as long as I live, I will never forget speaking to a group of our leaders at a gathering in, in actually it was in Germany. And I will never forget speaking about God's judgment on sin. And I'll never forget good friends that we've known for years and years and years. Christian people and, and the wife, when I was done, she was very upset. And in front of everybody in the room, she said, I, I, just, I, just, I just reject that kind of thinking. She said, just last night I was out on the street talking with a beautiful bunch of lovely, lovely girls. And they don't need that kind of condemnation. And I didn't have the guts to say it because it, I wasn't, chairing the meeting but what I wanted to say was let, let me tell you let me tell you something about what the Bible says about those beautiful young ladies you were talking to what the Bible says is apart from Jesus right now the wrath of God is resting on them and you do them no loving service if you don't tell them why they need Jesus they're not just beautiful people Is it fair that Jesus bears the punishment belonging to me? I think you have to address that question. The question needs to be framed, though, in the context of the doctrine of the Trinity, because God doesn't just, here's, here's the impression. You know the clever arguments about cosmic child abuse and, and other just sort of blasphemous kind of statements. God doesn't just pass the buck onto Jesus for my sin. He bears it himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. When God the Son bears the just condemnation of my sin on the cross, when I truly embrace that truth in faith, my own life experiences liberation. When, when the objective, legal, just condemnation for all of my sin, I'm not talking guilt feelings, I'm talking about actual guilt before a holy God. When it's dealt with from God's end in my salvation, the condemnation, I didn't come to condemn. There's eternal life. I love these words. You've known them for a long time. Paul Wax is eloquent here. What then shall we say to these things? You have to say something. 
You have to say something to the kind of guilt that can rise up in your heart, the fear of judgment, the uncertainty about the future, wondering about eternity, the acknowledgement from your own conscience that you drift so far from God so many times. What are you going to say? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Elect in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're elect. It's God who justifies. See, it's God who justifies. So who's going to condemn? You, you, got, you have a higher authority somewhere? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. You, you see Paul's argument there. Jesus came to bring the bondage of condemnation to its knees. Five. Jesus came to realign all earthly relationships. I get that in Matthew 10, 34 to 46. Do not think I have come. There it is. He's still talking Christmas here. Coming into the world. Don't think I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute. Sleep in heavenly peace. What? Isn't it peace? Okay, but this is Jesus. Don't, don't just think I came to give everybody feelings of peace. It's worse. I've not come to bring peace. That's that coming again. That's his birth. I've not come to bring peace, but, but a sword. I have come, here it is again. He makes it clear. He's talking Christmas. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. What, what, what are we going to do with those bizarre words? I was wondering whether to include them. Should we just pretend, okay, that's got to be some kind of scribal error. Surely Jesus didn't say something like that. That doesn't work because it's the most reliable historic document on the planet. I believe these words from Jesus, from Jesus, they're spoken with a divine purpose. And if we ignore them, we're, we're going to miss a, a lovely, soft, hidden grace wrapped up in a very hard outer shell. I think in our hearts, we know what Jesus is trying to tell us. Better Jesus with no one else than everyone else without Jesus. Better to live with division, strife, persecution, and have Christ then have peace, harmony, applause, the adoration of peers and friends, and end up with no genuine allegiance to Jesus Christ. So I, I think these hard words from Jesus, he felt they needed to be said because of some of the things we've understood earlier about Jesus coming to call sinners to repentance. 
But what does repentance look like? How does repentance manifest itself in my life? Well, most of the time when I think about repentance, I think about repenting for doing bad things. We, we lie. We exaggerate. We steal. We cheat. We brag. We boast. We hoard up material goods more than we should spend on ourselves. We covet. Okay, I get it. There's a lot of material there for repentance. And then, and then, Jesus says, I came to reveal something. I came, Christmas, I came to reveal something else. I might be missing something when I think about my repentance. I might be missing something. Jesus says, I, I need to change not only my actions, I need to change my allegiances. So when we follow Jesus, something that radical has to happen or, or we really aren't following him. And, and I think the reason Jesus shocks us with his, with his words about our own family members, those dearest to us on earth, I think it's because he's trying to jolt us into seeing something we don't usually look at very closely, if ever. That, that Jesus came to be Lord of all. He came to be number one in our lives, and sometimes that cause, calls for painful choices. Here's how I understand these hard words about family members. I think it's important. Jesus knows our, our fallen hearts, and he knows there's more grace here than you see on first reading. He knows that none of these earthly relationships, none of these family relationships, none of these earthly relationships will be safe from the corruption of my own proud, deceptive, sensitive, fallen heart. None of the relationships will be safe from my fallen heart unless all of them are brought underneath his lordship. You see what I'm saying? Your marriage isn't safe unless you love Jesus more than your spouse. When you love Jesus more than your spouse, you protect your marriage in a way that you never could just by trying to love your spouse more. Does everybody get the concept that I'm saying there? That's what Jesus is talking about. Six, last one. Jesus came to give eternal life. Read this with me out loud, and if you don't do it real loud, then the people on live stream think I'm doing this by myself. So you got to belt this out, okay? Let's read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I vividly remember, this is years ago, I vividly remember a Sunday night when a woman in this church, came up to the front as we were praying, and she crunched back tears as she told me of her childhood. And there was just more brokenness and pain and dysfunctionality there than I could fathom. And there were the usual why questions that are, well, they're just always impossible to answer. 
why questions. And I know she wasn't asking those with a bitter heart by the way she closed the conversation that we had. She said words that went something like, I'm not directly quoting, but it was like this. People tell me God didn't cause these events to come into my life, and I never know how to respond to that, she said. If he didn't cause them, he certainly allowed them. And how is that supposed to make me feel better? I was standing, this wasn't shaped this way, I was standing right there. How's that supposed to make me feel better? And I just stood there, never opened my mouth. And then she wound things up really quite gloriously. After airing that and those questions, she said, I don't know how people cope with all these things if they don't have Jesus in their hearts and a hope for eternity. That's what she said. And I thought to myself, that's it. That's it exactly. She was focusing on eternal life. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we know perishing isn't just dying because everybody, except for the last generation when Jesus comes, everybody dies. Perishing isn't dying. There's, there's something worse than dying. Eternal life, it's always the great ultimate answer. It's a strong answer. It's not a religious cop-out. Jesus said, he came. That's why he came. He came to give eternal life the ultimate answer. Eternal life to those who would believe. So there, those are six of the great I came's from Jesus. He spoke them himself. He said, here's why I came into the world. Go online, look them up, read them over and over again this Christmas season. There's enough things to depress you for sure. Cherish these things in your heart because nothing can take them away. We thank you, Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord Jesus, just for the privilege of coming and opening up your word. There are such sturdy I came's from Jesus. We don't have to guess. He made it clear. God the Son made it clear why he was coming into this world. I pray that we would draw strength and courage for some who have never acknowledged Jesus Christ that you would instill urgency. The sick need a physician. Sinners need a redeemer. They need to repent and receive eternal life. Do a deep work in our church this strange Christmas season. Come to every address with a spirit of renewal and grace and touch your people, I pray. Church, say the amen to that, nice and loud. Say it again, amen.